I don't see this psychologically for whatever reason as like money that's mine. It's just kind of added bonus, added risk. And that does play into my general philosophy of investing, which is you have to play big to win big. So once I started making money, I was saving, saving, saving because I didn't know what to do with it. So I lost out on a lot of market opportunities. I had a ton of cash that could have been invested in a house. And then during that time, the markets went crazy. So if you're thinking of doing something, anything, just do it. If you want to invest and you only have $20, put your $20 in there so that when you have $200, you know exactly what to do. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 304. Stace, how's it going? What's going on in your world? It's going well over here. I got a got a good four mile hike in today, so I'm feeling good. You're feeling less good about that four mile hike, but I'm feeling great. Yeah, it's hot and I'm a little sore, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see how see how it is tomorrow. That's for sure. So I want to start out. We got an email in actually this last week regarding your comments on gratitude last week. That I was going to read this. This comes from James. He says, I wanted to take a moment to send an email regarding your podcast. Prior to episode 303, you and Stacy were talking about gratitude. Stacy, with her practice of taking pause and recognizing what is good in life, it was a great entry for the show. In my home, we have the gratitude board. It's a simple magnetic whiteboard on a refrigerator. Every day, either my wife, two kids, or myself add what we are grateful for. It could be as simple as indoor running water. Long-time listener of the show, I want to say thank you and my whiteboard gratitude for today. It will be podcasts and a phone to listen to it on. So appreciate that, James. And uh, yeah, you know, the gratitude uh, board in our household has uh, been well used this week, to say the least. It, it really has. And, um, you know, something I was thinking about today, let's be real, Jace asking me every week what's going on stressful (laughs) i'm like we live in the same house i don't know how do i respond to this question it's so vague so i've started thinking in advance and if you don't like what i've been marinating on then that's okay and you can skip forward 30 seconds (laughs) but i was thinking today about how much the investment counts and obviously here we talk a lot about financial investment and any investment we're putting something in we're hoping it compounds we're hoping it makes things better I was thinking about this because I started listening to a new book this week. I always listen to something while I'm doing the evening cleanup. It just makes the time a little bit less painful. (laughs) And it presented some information that I've listened to before or some thoughts that are presented some ideas that I've heard before, but in a little bit different way that offered a little bit new perspective. And I thought about how that helped me shift my mindset And any aspect of our life that we're trying to improve, whether it's the same Achilles heel over and over again, or something that is new when we're trying to develop a new system for that makes it work, the investment is what matters. Trying something new, trying to see what what pasta sticks on the wall and, and is working for you, but keep chipping away at it, hoping it compounds when you see it growing. 
add more fuel to that fire and, and let that burn. Cool. Great thought. Appreciate that. So this week we have Meredith. She's single in her early 30s. And before I get a flood of emails in uh, for re- connection requests, I am charging any type of fee that uh, results in a success, uh, you know, kind of a success fee, if you will. And we get into a little bit of a joke about that. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a great episode. Net worth is at $1.65 million. About a third of it is in an IPO stock. So we get into how she accumulated that and why she has left it in that stock uh, from a concentration standpoint. She also got some real estate, really has all sorts of uh, dollars spread across all sorts of asset classes. So it's going to be a real, real, real great episode with her. One interesting fact is uh, she rents her house out when she's traveling. So kind of a new little house hack uh, in a way uh, on Airbnb, if you will. And uh, yeah, you definitely want to listen all the way to the end because some of the rapid fire questions with her are answers we have never heard before and they will get you rolling, laughing, and scratching your head probably. So uh, looking forward to this week's episode of Meredith. Last week we had Jeff. He was in his late 40s. He had a net worth of about $1.5 million. And uh, the reviews on him right now are stellar. The downloads are unreal. He may surpass our janitor. Well, we will see is the most popular episode uh, ever. So appreciate that. Appreciate you tuning in week after week. We hit 800 reviews on on Apple iTunes. So appreciate all for that. And in fact, to commemorate that, I was going to read the 800th review. This one's from TM Flag. Inspiring and valuable. This is easily one of my favorite podcasts. It features the most interesting stories from people like me. Average yet hardworking. As a newer everyday millionaire myself, I love listening to these stories, but I do tend to skip over the multimillionaires with extremely high incomes or excessive status as I just don't relate to them. Luckily, this podcast features a little bit for everyone. Keep up the good work. Appreciate that from TM Flag. And TM Flag, you are definitely right. We try to get as wide cast uh, for, for our guests as possible because that is one thing that we have found uh, that everybody loves they love to be able to relate to somebody or somebody that might just be a little bit ahead of them or even a lot of a lot ahead of them uh but on a similar path you know somebody's in their late 50s or 60s it might be different Uh, but if they're on the same similar path that maybe a 20 or 30 year old's taken as it relates to their investment strategy or even career or even you know hardships they've uh, had in their life we found that people really really love to relate uh, to those that they hear on the show and have a similar story. So with that being said, TM Flag, we got to get you on the show. Also, if you'd love to be on the show and you haven't been on the show yet, uh, send us an email, millionairesinbuilt at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story. And uh, yeah, with that, let's get into the interview with Meredith. Meredith, do you want to just give us about your background and what you're up to now? Yes. Hi, everyone. Super excited to be on the show tonight. I'm a 33-year-old single female. I live in Utah. And a little background is that after college, I lived in Europe for about three years, working as an English teacher. Then I came back to the U.S. at age 26 to start a career in tech sales, which I've been doing ever since. Wow. Lots to unpack there that we're going to dive into. But before we do, what's your net worth today? 1.65. Dang, you're a young millionaire. What is the breakup of that? 
So the breakup in order of highest to lowest is I have an IPO stock from a former tech company that I worked at as a very early employee that is now worth 630K. Then I have some cash sitting around waiting on, um, thanks to the show, uh, knock on wood, I'm in under contract on an investment property that's hopefully closing next week. That is something I didn't really think about until listening to the podcast. So thank you, um, Jace and all the participants who shared about that. So I've got 153 in cash. My 401k, I've got 136. Uh, I actually also front load that. So usually at the beginning of the year, the first few months, I put about 70 or 80% of my paychecks so that it has extra time to compound. Then in my mutual funds, I have 105K. I've got 100K in crypto. I dabble just for funsies with some individual stocks on Robinhood. That's 87K. I've got 24K in my Roth. 10k of those i bonds and 7400 in an hsa wow so we've got quite the the gamut the stuff that's invested in the market in your retirement accounts and your roth is that primarily in index funds or stocks or bonds or what's the makeup there yes it's mostly index and stocks okay and have you been maxing out your 401k for as long as you've been kind of in your working career no only a few years actually okay when when did you start make, maxing that out? I'd say maybe four years ago. Okay. Five years ago. And previous to that, did you contribute to? Very little. It, it was you know it was laughable at the time. My first tech job paid me thirty six grand a year, so I, I did not have any money to contribute to a four hundred one k. So no, it wasn't for at least two years into my career that I contributed minimally. Wow. So let's dive a little bit into this, this stock that you have from a, a former company. Why have you left that in that one stock with such a high concentration? Yeah, that's a great question. So it, it IPO'd after I had left the company to enter the market at around $15. I believe based on what I know of the company as having been one of their first employees that it will continue to go up. And it was about that time right around when the market was going down. So I decided to keep it. I do have a plan, um, you know, selling X amount of shares at Y dollar to diversify, but it's a very lengthy plan over time that um, doesn't even kick in until the shares hit about double what they're at today. So it doesn't kick in until the shares hit $30. Is there any fear that they would decrease significantly from where they are now? There's always that fear, but I don't I don't see this psychologically for whatever reason as like money that's mine. It's just kind of added bonus added risk and that does play into my general philosophy of investing, which is you have to play big to win big. And as far as the tax implications, have you already gone through that? Yes. So for, for to some degree, this is, in your mind, you, this is like house money. Correct. And and how have you arrived at, hey, it's got to double here before I start selling some of this off? You know, ha- talk through kind of the mindset of, of what led you to, to kind of get to the point where it's, hey, I'm going to double before I sell any of this. 
Yeah, it all kind of plays into my final number or my retirement number. And yes, I could sell some of it today, but then that would require me to be working longer or be doing other things. Whereas if I just hold a little bit and and wait until it goes up in price, then it would alleviate some of that. I also worked with a, a financial advisor on the plan. They wanted me to sell some of it at a lower price. Obviously, that's so that they can then manage it and they can make money off of it, which I completely understand. But I've always been a little bit of a riskier investor. So I'd rather hold and and only if it tanks quite a bit, then I would reevaluate. Meredith, could you take a step back for a second and talk a little bit about the retirement number you mentioned and and how you got there and and what it means? Yes. So (laughs) my biggest goal in life is to retire as soon as possible or at least retire and only take on work that I really want to do, not your traditional nine to five, maybe some fun consulting, maybe some nonprofit stuff. My number that I that I have in mind right now is 2-7, and that's based off a few different things. Um, I actually do or have done a few simulations with a different financial advisor as well. And so what that takes into account is what I spend today per year and then tracking on what I would spend once I retire given inflation, but also in my later years when I would need uh, healthcare, which unfortunately is quite costly. So it takes um, that and all my investments, but also when the properties, which I'm sure we'll go into that I own now would be owned outright. So it kind of takes an expense away there as well. Wow, that is incredibly precise and thoughtful. I'm very impressed. Uh, When did you start to think about something like that? That's so far off. (laughs) Yes, that's a great question. Um, It's something (laughs) I've kind of always thought about. Work for me has always been a means to an end. And the end has just always been retirement. Um, I think it's kind of wild and backwards that we spend our youth and our best years toiling away and you know, the average retirement age right now is what, 67, or the the retirement age officially is 67, but the average life expectancy is either 74, if roughly, these are rough numbers, or 74 if you're a man and 80 if you're a woman. So that gives you 10 years of freedom. I think it's absolutely ludicrous. So I don't want to be one of either of those stats. So I work really hard to retire, um, which my plan right now, if things go according to plan, is between 42 and 43. So you you, you have this goal, you've wanted to retire, and was it after you identified this goal that you worked with a financial advisor to, to understand the details? Or, yes. or when, did, when did the financial advisor come into play? Yes, yeah, so I started using a financial advisor maybe about four years ago once I started making over six figures. At the time, they were a very boutique and holistic firm that took not only my assets and managed those, but it was a lot of education financially. So at the time, I was 28 years old, my second year of being in the workforce. Um, Granted, I was a teacher before, so, uh, you know, pretty brand new to work and IRAs and 401ks. And as I previously mentioned, I wasn't contributing to a 401k. So I have to credit this boutique firm with a lot of education. But then once I kind of outgrew that firm. 
I recently moved to another firm and they're very focused with me on different retirement uh, simulations. Oh, interesting. What what does it mean to outgrow the firm? Yeah, that's maybe those weren't the best words by me, but again, they had really focused on kind of that beginner financial education. So what's a what's an IRA? What's a Roth IRA? What's a backdoor? Here's why you should contribute to a 401k. And again, I have to credit them with a lot of the things they had taught me, but I was looking for more of an end game and end and and retirement simulations, and it just didn't seem to be aligned with things that they could offer at the time. Got it. So you you were really trying to engage with them on you know a pretty high level or, or you know pretty pretty uh, intricate modeling. We're not actually able to get to that level level of depth and expertise that you're looking for. Correct. Got it. Meredith, I want to dig a little bit into to your Roth. When did you start that? The Roth probably four four years ago. Okay. And have you maxed that for the last four years? Yes. Which I'm trying to remember for single, it's been like 35 to 3750 ish. Yes. That you've been putting in there. So to some degree, you've doubled that. What, what happened, I guess, in the last four years in, in real, I mean, I guess probably your income, right? Is, has drastically increased. Is that yes. when you started kind of contributing to all these and making it a point to max them out? Yes. That also combined with once the market got a little bit shaky, my industry became more unpredictable. So in case I were ever to be out of a job, I wanted to make sure that those accounts were funded fully at the top of the year. Interesting. Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the the real estate that you're starting to acquire. How did why did you decide to buy a home as a as a single individual and you know how did you settle on what you bought? And then I also want to talk about kind of the the real estate play that you are are basically going to kind of pursue, you know, as as time goes on. So, I was this was probably four years ago, wanted to start investing in real estate, wanted to get my own either residence, condo or apartment. At the time I was living in San Francisco and it was a very high barrier to entry. As you and all our listeners are already well aware, I was looking at 800K apartments where I'd still have to have a roommate as a 28 year old. And that just wasn't something I wanted to do. So I actually moved out to Utah which I've been coming here for years to ski, but since getting into real estate was a a really big goal of mine, it just made sense. So I moved out here. I lived in an apartment for a year while I kind of scoped the scene, started working with a fantastic realtor. And this, this part is kind of funny. I was living in the apartment. I was looking at houses. It was um, just before COVID, so you could still be pretty picky with what you wanted. Nothing had exploded yet. Salt Lake hadn't really blown up. And I was living in this apartment, and I was actually dating my next-door neighbor. And so (laughs) the breakup got um, kind of messy, and I I just wanted to get out of there. We actually shared a wall. We shared parking spaces adjacent to one another. And it just so happens the next day my realtor already had two viewings lined up. Walked in, way less picky, loved one of the houses. It didn't have a garage, which is why it was on the market for 20 20 plus days. I didn't care. I just wanted to get out of there. Made an offer the very next day and landed in a fabulous house, which 
I own today, it has three bedrooms, two baths. And the great thing about this house is I've also made it an Airbnb. So the upstairs is a guest suite. Whenever I travel for work, for fun or whatever, I lock my bedroom door and I have a code box outside with also with cameras and I rent the house out. So it makes me money when I'm not in it. So what, what's the play going forward as it relates to real estate? How much of, uh, of your portfolio are you going to allocate to real estate? I haven't decided on a number yet. The property that I'm under contract with right now is a purely an investment two-bedroom condo just a few minutes away from here. It was a really good price on that. It was $255, and I could still charge $1,600 based on what I was seeing for rentals in the area. So I'd come out even each month. Um, and then I predict in about a year and a half, two years, the rents will actually go up and I'll net positive. I love the idea of having a uh, your house that doubles as an Airbnb when you're not there. And I think those types of small little hacks are, are some of the hacks that we hear from from millionaires like yourself. I'm curious, what, what do you actually make off of that? And how often are you renting it? Yeah, I probably don't make much, but I do break even whenever I travel. So I usually rent either the one bedroom for 110 a night or the two bedrooms for 150 a night. So if I'm going somewhere and the hotels are that equivalent, then I break even. I'd say it rents about 75% of the time that I put it up. So keep in mind, I live in this most of the time, but I'm probably gone one to one and a half weeks per month at a 75% uh, rental success rate. So it's not quite making me money yet, but it enables me to travel at next to nothing. I love it. And I think it's a great idea. Uh, and how much time is it for, for you, time and or headache? It's really not that bad, actually. So I managed the listing. I actually just got the photos redone the other day to increase the likelihood of, of bookings. The photo shoot itself was $100. I furnish these bedrooms anyways for guests and when I have family members visit. And then I just manage the list. It's not like I pay a property management firm just because it's so manageable right now because, you know, I don't know, maybe next week I travel for work and I put it up today and and that's really all there is to it. If we think, if we go back and, and uh, let's pivot a little bit and talk about your career, I mean, it's super remarkable that you're so young. And I think you said you started out with a couple years even living abroad. Um, so your career actually got started later than a lot of the people we have on the show. Could you talk about how you ascended the the ladder in order to get the W-2 income to, to get to where you are? Yes, that's a great call out. So as I mentioned, I started out as an English teacher making, you know, basically just making ends meet abroad. It was really more for the experience. And then after about two and a half, three years, um, this is what, 2014, 2015, that's when tech really started to heat up. So I'm from the Bay Area. So most of my friends out of college had gotten jobs in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco. So they're really in touch with the scene. And people just me text really heating up. You should really come back if you want to start a career. There wasn't really going to be a lucrative career 
broad. So I just kind of pulled the plug and said, okay, yeah, let's try tech sales. So I came back, got a job at, I don't know if I can disclose the name. If I can, I got a job at Yelp and that only paid $36,000 per year. And what was unique about this company is that typically in sales, you get paid on every dollar that you bring in, whether you hit quota or not. But this company was so chintzy, they only paid you once you hit your quota. So if my quota is 10K for the month, I would only get commission on top of my 36,000 annual if I made that quota each month and it would only start once I hit it. So I wasn't there to make any money. I knew I wouldn't make any money, but they had a really well-known training program. And so I knew I would learn the sales skills and throughout Silicon Valley, this company would be well-recognized and well-received as a future job seeker. So after about nine months there, I moved to another tech company that paid much more. I was making, I think the OTE was about 110, 120. And then from there, I jumped to uh, a startup. So these two first companies were well-known public Fortune 500 companies. And then I I was at a startup. I got really lucky with I didn't know that they were going to be as successful as they were. There were some inclinations or there were some reasons why I joined it. The founders had success. So I knew there was a likelihood that it would take off. But um, I doubled what was the OTE at that time. It was 140. So once I started working there, I think my third year in tech, I was making about 300K and it's really only up from there. So today my salary is 350. And so you can imagine for five years, I've been making between 300 to 400K. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, congratulations. That's a, Those are some big numbers. And I'm, and I'm really impressed with your risk taking and, and knowing when to pivot. You, you For the, the pivot to the startup, you just did your diligence and you felt comfortable taking a risk then? Or was there something that triggered you or your ability to take a risk? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Eleanor. So it's funny, I was pretty happy at my previous job, but I was commuting to the South Bay from San Francisco, which at the time was about two hours each day. And so this recruiter did a fantastic job doing their job and their outreach said, tired of commuting to the South Bay. And I thought, absolutely, yes. Like, I really don't care what the company is. I'll take the call. And then once I took the call, I discovered that it's a very reputable founding team. They're being very selective. Candidly, I didn't even think I would make the cut. I was very shocked to be, I think I was the second youngest salesperson at the time. I was salesperson number 10. Um, so, so got really lucky, but really just was interested because of how exclusive they were. So even though I didn't know the potential of the company, I knew there was potential. And so is your plan to stay with this company, you know, for indefinitely? No. So I've since left that company in tech and in tech sales, you really, the average tenure is actually about 18 months just because it's in the job seeker's best interest to um, grow their OTE if, if they can hop around, which is counterintuitive to what employers want to see actually on your resume. So it doesn't make a ton of sense, but I've since left that company. That company is the one that I own most of my, or I own all of the IPO stock with. That company later went uh, public. And so I've, I, I'm now at a company, a different tech company, one that I'm very happy at, I hope I can stay uh, where I am for quite a bit. Wonderful. And and for some of our listeners who are not as familiar with sales, OTE is for 
stands for on target earnings, which is the amount that you make if you hit 100% of your quota. Is that right? Yes. Good call out. Now that we are in the thick of summer, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals to support, support sunny, active days. Factor, America's number one ready to eat meal kit can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious ready to eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track reaching your goals. Looking for calorie conscious options this summer? Try delicious, dietitian approved, calorie smart meals with around or less than 550 calories per serving. This July, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor packed meals delivered straight to your door, ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. And as a user myself, I must say they are absolutely amazing. They taste great, they're quick, they're easy delivered straight to my door and I love it. Head to factormeals.com slash millionaire50 and use code millionaire50 to get 50% off. That's code millionaire50 at factormeals.com slash millionaire50 to get 50% off. And thanks for to Factor for supporting today's episode. Meredith, where do you go from here as it relates to your investments? You know, each dollar that comes in, are you going to continue to max out your retirement accounts and your Roth IRA and then invest in real estate? Or how do you think about as you as each dollar comes in, where it's going? Yes. So right now I live off my base. So as Eleanor pointed out, let's say my OTE, let's say for numbers wise today is 300K. It's divided by 150 of that is guaranteed as my base salary. And then 150 of that is if I hit my quota, right? So I live well below the 150. And even with that, I max out the IRA, I max out the 401k, I have all of my spending there. And then anything extra that is my commissions is sent to savings and it's sent to investments. Small amount for fun, but the rest is invested. And in, in going forward, is that investment going to be real estate or are you going to still continue to invest in the market, you know, after tax, taxable brokerage or whatever? Yes. A little bit of everything. Okay. And then once you get to that 2.7, was it, are you, are you turning in notice and, and closing up shop? You betcha. Do you plan to pay off your house at that point too, or, or not so concerned about that? No, I plan to keep the house and rent it out for tax deduction purposes. One of my simulations actually calls out if I were to continue living in the U.S., what my life would look like. If I move abroad, or sorry, one of the simulations is if I move to a cheaper place in the U.S., what that would look like for savings and how much I could spend and how quickly I could retire. The third simulation that I work on with my planner is if I moved abroad, I could cut my spending in half, but also I'd rent out this house, which would increase my income. And also I could retire much quick, much more quickly that way as well. And you're thinking it's going to be 10 more years till you hit the 2.7? I don't know if it's really going to be 10 more years. I think it could be sooner, but based on the numbers we have today, that is about, yeah, nine years from now. And then at that point, given that a lot of your retirement accounts will be somewhat off limits, what what's the plan just to live off of the, the real estate income and then the brokerage? Correct. Interesting. And how much do you think you'll need to to live off of if you live spend, in the U.S.? Yeah, I spend eighty two thousand per year today. Okay. So with inflation, I don't have that number, but it wouldn't deviate much from that. But then 
once I get older and healthcare and things like that kick in, the number goes up. Yeah, for sure. Has your spending increased as your income's gone up? Just a little bit, not by much, no. What are what are some of the splurges that you're willing to, to splurge on now that you weren't maybe three, four, five years ago? I'm more into convenience and experiences. I've always been into experiences. So traveling, eating out, doing things with friends, entertainment. I love to travel for Broadway shows. I, <laughs> my coworkers sometimes give me a hard time and I'm like, hey, you know, you guys travel to see basketball games and baseball games. I'm going to go travel so I can see Les Mis or Wicked on Broadway. So big into that. That. What I didn't used to do before that I do now is more convenience factors. So having a regular house cleaner, having um, there's a service I love. It's called Glam Squad, where they'll come to your house and I could be in my robe and sipping champagne and they'll do my hair. So I don't even need to leave the house. So things like that to just make my life easier and more enjoyable. It, it, I'm not into things. I've never been into things. I still use the library regularly, Nerd Alert. They're a favorite on my phone. So they're on my speed dial (laughs) because you can just pull up, call them and they'll bring your book right out. So things like I don't spend money on on books, but, you know, I'll have the hairdresser come to the house. I love a little high low. That's what I like to call it. (laughs) Uh, Thinking about your your healthcare planning. So that's obviously so so far off. How did you budget that number? And and did you come up with a number for what you think that's going to cost? I did not. That's something my advisor suggested just based on national averages and the time or the age at which that normally kicks in. Got it. How did you develop an interest in personal finance? Ooh, that's a great question. I guess growing up in the Bay Area, I was always surrounded by money and actually grew up in a pretty wealthy area. I don't come from money at all. We were, I'd say we were middle class. My mom was sick growing up. She had multiple sclerosis, so she couldn't work. My father was the sole provider for our family. So again, no complaints because we had a roof over our head. We had food and schools, but money was really tight. However, those around us, it didn't seem to be tight for them because we did grow up around influence. But yeah, my father had to play it really safe having to provide for the three of us. So he couldn't really take on many risks, either in his career or investments. So I guess just seeing all that money around me and seeing what was possible led to my interest in in self-finance. Um, I've always had to kind of find a way to make my own money, too. So again, there wasn't a ton of money going around. I started working really young, and I think that's where I learned the value of a dollar. I would babysit at age 12. This was also before there were websites. So I would kind of print out a babysitting flyer on our home computer and our home printer, and I'd go around the neighborhood and staple them to the telephone poles. Or I would take out an ad in the local newspaper. It was think $30 for five weeks, which I also had to pay for. So just starting really, really young and and learning the value of a dollar, but really getting into personal finance, I guess, once I started making money and and being around it at a higher level and knowing that there was a much more to it. How did you recognize wealth and money around you? As a child or kind of as a young adult? 
Yeah, as a as a child growing up in the Bay Area, I mean, what was it? Was it the cars? Was it the house? Man, how did you how did you realize that there was all this wealth and money and and different things and different paths when you were that young? Yeah, I think it was just being around other families and seeing how easy it was for them to kind of go out to dinner or hearing them plan all their. Uh, summer vacation. So growing up, we we didn't go on summer vacations. We maybe went to visit our, our grandparents when we were really young. Again, money was tight. Like we had all the basics, so I'm not complaining. But one thing that comes to mind is, you know how kids go through shoes so quickly, they're always running around. And so you get the holes at the bottoms of your shoes, your running shoes. Well, when it was time to get new shoes, instead of buying new shoes, my father would put shoe glue on them and just kind of like makeshift the shoes so they'd last a few more weeks, last a few more months. So I think, you know, actually noticing my my friends get new shoes all the time or hearing them go on vacations or just go out to dinner. I mean, those were things we just didn't do, we couldn't do, and they weren't things we were even going to ask about. And so just had to kind of make the money on our own, like I said, start babysitting and start taking odd jobs as young as 12. I also think when I would talk about my babysitting, I would ask my friends, what's your summer job? And they would say things like, I'm 12. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Or even, you know, I was lifeguarding and catering and hostessing and seeing my friends just kind of like hang out and go to the pool and do whatever. I think when I was 12 on, when I started working and saw that my friends didn't have to, it was probably when it really dawned on me. Meredith, since you've had so so much success, I'm curious, how does this affect your dating life? Ooh, that... <laughs> That's that's a great subject. Um, or sorry, that's a great question. It's funny because that's how I originally reached reached out to the podcast, actually. So avid listener, longtime fan. I absolutely love the podcast, but I reached out to Jace and I said, Hey, I love your podcast, but everyone I'm hearing on here is giving their net worth, but then they're bringing in their wife or their husband. And so it's it's kind of doubled. And that to me isn't, you know, net worth. And Jace so kindly corrected me and he said, actually, like, yeah, your net worth is is with your spouse. So I am still very single. If anyone out there knows anyone. <laughs> but um, yeah, unfortunately, I found that while they might not might while they might not admit it, I've been told by other males that males that I would date or males that I have dated are intimidated by my success and Um, For a while, I didn't believe it, but then I noticed that I just kind of downplayed my success. I I don't really talk about my success. I certainly don't talk about what kind of money I'm bringing in. I rarely talk about the investments. It it would take a really high earner or a very secure partner to handle, I think, what I've done, and I just haven't found that yet. So are you open to dating people with a very different financial background as you right now? Yeah. And that's the thing is I've done that. Like income hasn't really ever mattered to me, but I have found that I think it affects them. And I don't think that the males that I have dated would ever admit it, but I definitely see them act differently. Yes. Mm -hmm. Once they catch on, like I'm not out there saying, oh, I make so much money. But if I say, hey, like, you know, I want to take us to dinner tonight and I, you know, I want to have a good time too. So I'm pretty generous and I go to nice places and I think once they see the kind of places that I'm suggesting, they kind of, they're like the turtle that goes back in their shell. (laughs) 
Um, and especially as I think, as you put it, you're not really a one and a half millionaire. You're more like a three millionaire when we compare to the, all these couples. So even more impressive. <laughs> Thank you, Eleanor. <laughs> My girl. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, women supporting men, women, we're here for it. So are you going to try to go find people that are more open to this or, you know, think about going outside of your city or something like that to try to find people who are willing to be with uh, someone as successful as you've been? Yes, I would love to. I've tried to associate myself with, you know, professional organizations, working organizations, private social clubs, things like that nature to kind of be around more secure or higher earners. And, you know, I've met some lovely people, just know romantic prospects yet. So if anyone out there is listening, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Hey, Jace, you're going to be getting a lot of emails. Watch out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready for them. If I'm going to play matchmaker with millionaires, you know what? Uh, Maybe that uh, will will be another benefactor of the show. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems like with these private clubs and, you know, Broadway shows, there is, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this sort of dynamic of you're very frugal. You're very, uh, you know, I think financial independent oriented but you also have some of these luxuries. How, how do you balance that? Yes. So the, the Broadway shows and the entertainment, those aren't things I'm doing every day, right? So I might go see a show once or twice a month. And yes, when I go, I go front row, but it's the difference of paying $120 and having a magnificent top-notch experience versus paying you know, $80 and being up in the nosebleed. So that's how I justify it. And then... I, I just think it's really interesting how you have two things going on at once, which is, you know, such a high income and such a drive and, and you know, a lot of a lot of luxuries, but also able to save so aggressively. Yes. So you're right. It's it's a delicate balance. Right. So I, I try to be crafty whenever I can. So I, I do love going to the ballets and the broadways and, you know, paying one hundred twenty dollars for front row versus, you know, the eighty dollars that I would have to pay anyways to be in the nosebleeds. But I also do a lot of crafty things. Right. So, you know, I mentioned I read a ton. I go through, you know, three books a a week. So instead of buying those at twenty five bucks a pop, seventy five bucks a week, what is that? Three hundred bucks a month. I go to the library. So that saves me what is that, four grand a year? And so that's how I kind of justify some things. Also the house hack. So I bought my house at a 2.5% interest rate. It's not even 20% of of my monthly income and when I'm not here. So it, it's a lot of craftiness behind behind the mirror, behind whatever, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. one, one quick housekeeping question. When you originally graduated from college, did you have any student debt? I did. I had $25,000 of student debt. Okay. And was that a big priority to pay off early on or how did that fit into your journey? No, it was actually very low priority. So I specifically chose this school because they did give me a lot of scholarships. I didn't get anything to stay in state California at the time, which I found kind of ludicrous being a native. So I went to the East Coast to a private Catholic school and I played field hockey there. So I got quite a few scholarships, academic, athletic, religious, um, to be able to come out with only 25K. It really breaks my heart when I hear, you know, either people on the podcast or just people in real life that come out of college with 50K, 60K, 100K, because that'll just 
mess up your life. So I was fortunate enough that it was only 25K and I was able to pay that off really quickly with summer jobs eventually. However, when I first graduated, I went to I went to live abroad and I was making really minimal money. And so my parents were saying, you have to pay the minimum, you have to pay the minimum, otherwise you're going to screw up your credit. And the minimum at the time was about $160, but I'm 22 years old. I'm living in Europe. $120 a month can either go to student loans or that could be a really cool weekend trip to Paris or to Portugal or to Croatia. So I just, you know, I did not pay my loans for three full years. And so when I came back, yes, my credit was jacked and I had accumulated the interest on that. So that was my top focus when I when I first moved back was paying that off as soon as possible. And quite the quite the 180 from from how you think about it today. When you were thinking when you were thinking about the trade-offs of where to go to college, was that something that you were researching and identifying, or was that led by more led by your parents? I think that just came down to common sense. Actually, uh, we had counselors at school, college counselors, who would touch lightly on the subject, but it just seemed like since you know I didn't grow up with credit cards and I didn't grow up with big amounts of spending and seeing spending in our family, it was just like ingrained, you don't spend what you don't have. And so if I didn't have 100K to go to college, I'm not going to sign up for 100K debt. I mean, when you say it like that, it definitely sounds black and white. But I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a tough call for a lot of people. Yeah. Meredith, let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What's the most expensive pair of shoes that you've purchased? $110. Okay. They're sneakers. They're sneakers. Exciting. And I just bought them last year because my boyfriend at the time was like, you never spend any money on yourself. Please buy these shoes. And he made me do it. So they're not <laughs> 60 bucks, but he made me splurge. You're, <laughs> offering, me you're <laughs> offering to pay for dinner and he's making you buy, I guess, formerly ex-boyfriend <laughs> making you buy a pair of shoes for 110 bucks. I love it. What's the uh, most expensive meal out that you paid for? Meals are something I splurge on regularly. Just the other week, I flew to San Francisco to go to one of the top 50 restaurants in the world. That tasting menu alone was $500, but worth every cent. Okay. What's the uh, most expensive car that you purchased? I have a BMW right now. I bought it off of an exciting commissions check. I don't even think I let it hit the bank. I, I went straight to the dealer and got the Beamer, but I got them on a good deal. It was 30K. Brand new? No, it had 30,000 miles on it. Okay. What has been the most expensive experience or vacation or or trip that you've been on? Went to South Africa about three to four years ago. And the safaris, you go on them twice a day, sunrise, sunset, I got to see the lions, leopards, water buffalo, cheetahs, gazelles. It was $800 a night for about five nights, but absolutely incredible. Okay. What uh, bucket list experience are you looking forward to still? I want to get to South America, or I'd love to go on another boat trip throughout Europe. I did the yacht week once where you get on a yacht with about 10 friends and there's a hundred yachts of people on boats with their 10 friends. I think doing a private private yachting session would be amazing again. Okay. Do you use a credit card? I do. Have you always used a credit card? No. When I first moved back to the States, I had racked up about $2,000 worth of credit. And so actually cut it up, moved to a debit until I could pay it all back and then learned the value of points. Okay. What's a key lesson that you learned from childhood? Ooh, a key lesson I learned from childhood would be 
anyone can do it, right? You know, how bad do you want to change your current situation? Anyone can become a millionaire. Okay. What's a closely held belief that you've recently changed your mind on? I think a lot of people, including myself, aspire to own a home. I love my home. And like I said, I rent it out. So it's nice that way. But I just have too much home for little, little me. It's a time suck. I have to do the lawn. I have to organize the people to come maintain the lawn. You know, the water burst in winter. So now I need to get someone to buy a new water pipe. Come fix that. And, you know, there's always things that are going wrong. And I hate the maintenance aspect. I would never buy a house again, condos only, where all of the yard work and everything else is managed by someone else. Okay. What's the craziest thing that you've done to earn money? (laughs) Do you guys remember Craigslist? Yeah. I used to regularly troll Craigslist for those one-off events. And I don't know if you remember the show Jackass, which is kind of like pranks. The One of the producers of that show created a spinoff called Kicked in the Nuts. And so I got paid quite generously, actually, in college to uh, kick people in their genitals repeatedly. <laughs> and how much did you earn for that? Seven. <laughs> $75 an hour. Wow. That's pretty good money. <laughs> that's hilarious. Was this all on video too? Yes. Wow. <laughs> I knew I was going to get a good story with that question. Love it. That and being a Hooters girl, coast to coast. Okay. Luck, skill, hard work. How would you rank them? Hard work, number one. And then with hard work, everything else comes. Okay. What is a mistake that you've made that you would caution others against? Mistake that I've made that I would caution others against. Not doing things soon enough. So once I started making money, I was saving, saving, saving because I didn't know what to do with it. So I lost out on a lot of market opportunities. I had a ton of cash that could have been invested in a house. And then during that time, the markets went crazy. So if you're thinking of doing something, anything, just do it. If you want to invest and you only have $20, put your $20 in there so that when you have $200, you know exactly what to do. Awesome. Last words of advice for somebody who's just starting out. Anyone can learn this stuff. You just have to ask yourself, how bad do you want to change your current situation? Awesome. That's Meredith with a net worth of $1.6 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jace. Thanks, Eleanor. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.